Welcome to episode 17 of Renewing the Conversation, a series of interviews where we talk to leading industry professionals and experts about renewable energy and heating, with a focus on the home and what challenges face the industry and homeowners. Today we welcome Dave Pearson, Group Sustainable Development Director at Star Refrigeration. Dave tells us how heat pumps are being used to heat apartment blocks and how we can transition away from gas as a primary source of heating for homes in the UK. Before we get started, we want to say a huge thank you to today's sponsor, Orium Energy, a company providing solar installation services with state-of-the-art monitoring systems. To find out more, head over to www.oriumenergy.com. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button below and please show us your support by giving us a thumbs up. Enjoy the interview. Hi Dave, good morning. Thank you for joining us today on this very, we're kind of entering winter now. Yeah, the temperatures are getting a little bit colder, so it's a really good time to start to think about our heating. So um, Star Refrigerant uh, was involved in delivering the first community air source heat pump installation in the UK um, to provide renewables as a source of central heating for residential high-rise buildings. Can you tell us a little bit more about district heating and um, how what the role is that heat pumps play in that, the, that those kind of projects? Okay, well, nice, nice to be with you. The UK has perhaps the most sophisticated gas network in the world. Um, it stretches to many, many buildings. I think it's over 95% of buildings are heated with gas. It's incredibly safe, despite the odd uh, story in the news, and uh, it's incredibly reliable, even in sort of pretty extreme weather. So, you know, going from that, you know, why would you bother doing something different? And it, it's really down to uh, principally uh, two aspects. The first the first is uh, global pollution and, and climate change and CO2 emissions. So there's definitely a trend to find some other way of doing heating rather than burning gas. The buildings are all very, very different uh, in shapes and sizes. I think uh, one of the studies suggested there was a 150 different archetypes of buildings when you consider shape, size, age, usage, ownership, um, proximity to other stuff. It's it's a really complicated landscape. In part of that landscape, it will probably be better to do communal uh, heating or, or a, a, a network of pipes passing by the buildings with a large centralised heat pump rather than individual heat pumps. Um, my house, I've got a, a, an individual heat pump here. Um, it's a sort of fairly typical bungalow in the suburbs. That probably doesn't suit district heating, I don't think. But... The, the higher density buildings, now that might still be um, a domestic residences, blocks of flats, they might be uh, social landlords, they might be privately owned, but at the moment they're probably heated uh, with gas and we need to move forwards from that. And district heating is the simplest way of doing it. It quite literally is swapping whatever the heating device is in, in the, the apartments, the flats, called a, a heat interface unit, a heat interface unit is added and the gas boiler that might actually be uh, used in, in the flats is taken away. And so it, it's just a case of finding the best way of making the heat to feed into the district heating pipes, travel perhaps. I mean, some of these schemes are 20 kilometres long. So putting the heat into the pipes, delivering to all the apartments, and the apartments simply take heating for either heating or hot water uh, for their apartment and they move forwards from, from burning gas. So that's the end of the market, if you like, that, that we're in. You were involved in a project of seven existing high-rise blocks, a total of 350 social homes in Hill Park Drive in Glasgow. Can you tell us about 
that um uh, was it a retrofit uh, how did you guys handle that project and how did you tackle the challenges that i'm sure were involved in that kind of scale project so the the, the flats are are uh, provided by glasgow housing association uh, the gha in the large part still rented some of them have been sold as much as the property is um, you know, going back over the 80s, there was a trend for uh, people being encouraged to buy the property. That actually makes district heating much harder because you've got mixed ownership. It's not just a, a single landlord. But they're all electrically heated. Uh, and that's really the worst of the worst. You've got the, the worst quality of property, typically, uh, in terms of insulation. You've got the worst style of heating, which is nighttime storage heating. You have to decide how cold you're going to be tomorrow and then how much to put the heating on today. And you're buying the worst fuel in the sense of um, the cost of it. It's it's now electricity will be obviously nighttime rates are, are slightly lower, but it could could be uh, ten pence per kilowatt hour at night. But daytime rates could be twenty four pence. I mean, we're seeing a massive shock. And then sadly, also uh, people that are not on direct debits and are on prepaid meters get the poorest rate. So add all that up, it's a really really unsatisfactory. Um, situation and results in uh, sadly some unpleasant jargon um, heating or eating uh, some people uh, on a daily basis are trying to decide whether to spend you know uh, meager resources on um, or, or food or heating and that's that's a tragic situation so um, the GHA have um, been working across a variety of estates this particular one uh, they they employed a consultant to design a system to uh, deliver hot water to all these apartments um, and the heat interface unit, as I was saying. And they now have a fairly typical radiator system um, in each of the each of the rooms, uh, fed from the district heating, which is fed from two sources. One is uh, an energy center with gas boilers and one is an air source, a larger air source heat pump. When you go into a project like that and, you know, one of your forethoughts are, you know, looking at how sustainable that technology is going to be financially for the homeowners. So it's all very well putting in um, high tech equipment, but if it's so unsustainable that people can't afford to continue to use it, that is something that's obviously what you were touching on uh, before about um, heating and poverty um, yeah. and low income housing, having to deal with those really tough decisions, especially this winter. How much has that impacted, that project impacted people living there and being able to afford their heating? It's, it's a complicated question that's worth trying to explain. Um, the cost of heating is a function of several things. The first is what the price of the fuel that's being consumed by the, the new heating system is. Is it, you know, how much of it is from gas? How much of it is from electricity? The second is how much operational support. So in the UK, we've enjoyed the renewable heat incentive um, which basically was leveling up um, what we call in the industry the spark gap. It's the difference in price between the electricity price and the gas price. And typically around Europe, that will be about three to one. So electricity will be three times the cost of gas, but using a heat pump with an efficiency of three, that brings the price of operating the system back level. What we've unfortunately seen in the UK is that the price of electricity is drifting up faster than the price of gas. So the spark gap is is widening. It's now approximately five and a half times ratio. So a heat pump really struggles without any operational support. And that operational support was the renewable heat incentive. Uh, in this case, although it's domestic properties because there, there's many of them, it's the non-domestic renewable heat incentive. And that 
basically was um, contributing into the operational costs about two and a half times the cost of burning gas not to burn gas. There's then, of course, the, um, the, the, the capital cost of all this. This is not uh, a cheap project to deploy, so it's, it's uh, many millions of pounds. And if that's spread over many, many years, you know, it, it becomes much more palatable. But the key thing uh, really is we're not going to see these projects uh, carry forwards because there's now no operational support to overcome that electricity price. So uh, whilst we can do it and actually uh, bigger schemes and, and uh, probably more, more repeatable uh, are the water source heat pump schemes that we've done. But there's no operational support. The, the, the schemes that the government are talking about is effectively a, a, a percentage grant for the capital cost um, of approximately 25%. Um, and that's obviously very helpful. But if it costs more to run than gas, getting a discount, you, you know, frankly, you couldn't give it to a community for free mm-hmm. and they would still welcome the fact that the cost was higher than what they had been doing because, um, you know, heating is a very personal thing um climate change isn't isn't yet something that people are prepared to take their annual budget and say i'm prepared to spend this much per year so we're really we're really in dark days in terms of heat pumps across all sizes the awareness has never been higher we will see some really interesting stuff in the domestic um really easy end of the market and it's perhaps not the topic of today but um a five thousand pound grant towards a, a a domestic heat pump for a small property that's already quite well insulated and doesn't need a big heat pump. I dare say that. Well, and, and if we can do these en masse, I think the industry, as talented as many, many of the, the installers are, they're doing one at a time. That is not the way that you, you do it. It's, it's um, you know, going back all the way to, to the Industrial Revolution. That's really what we, we worked out was that that um, repeat situation. And by, by odd coincidence, I was over at COP26, uh, obviously a couple of weeks ago, and I'm back there on the venue tonight at the SEC to go and see Fat Boy Slim. And uh, obviously his his mantra of eat, sleep, rave, repeat. We need to do um, heat, save, heat, save, save, repeat, or, or whatever yeah. it might be for heat pumps, but we're not there. If we do, you know, if we went into a, a, a 15-year-old estate that had been built by persimmon or cala or barrett or any of the major um house builders and came up with a proposition for all the houses that was attractive in the short term but brought that support to them of of how to um a deploy it and b manage it you might see the costs come down and, and five thousand pounds would make the difference between people saying no thanks i'd rather go to ibiza on my holidays or uh you know actually doing it but we're a long way away from that being for for the vast majority um so dark days for heat pumps uh, so just speaking about this hill park drive project how long did that retrofit project take to complete i think it was, it was certainly over a year but less than two years i think i think it was something like 400 apartments all had to have radiators uh, central heating fitted heat interface units and some degree of redecoration, some wiring aspects. Um, we weren't involved in that. We just, our, our scope for this was only the heat pump. So was, was that particular project phased? So were people without heating for portions of it? I mean, how, how was that all put together? I, I think there probably was a period um, uh, for each apartment, but it was, it was being done on a phased basis. And I think it was done so that 
the downtime, if you like, for each apartment was was measured in days rather than weeks. Um, I'm not, I wasn't part of that part of the, the the project team, so I can't say for sure. So, just talking, you mentioned that there is just so many challenges now that that face um, communities. Where do you think that the easiest gains are for decarbonising high density housing in the UK? Well, you have you have to be more specific about high density housing. Is it is it um, apartment blocks? Um, I, I I don't actually think there are any easy ones at the moment. I think we've gone from a period of of um, good financial support to to not good. Um, so I don't think there's any easy wins. Um, the obvious thing we have to do is stop building new properties with gas boilers in it. That's just mind-numbingly stupid. Uh, I can't put it any plainer than that, that we would keep building properties with a, a, a system that we know is not um, going forward. And I worry that some of the, the legislation that gets talked about of uh, I hear 2024 and 2025, actually that's not the, the last date that you can hand over the keys to a property. It's the date after which you won't be allowed to apply for a building warrant or a, a, a building warrant application. And of course, uh, if you've ever done any uh, renovation work or built, built a home, that allows you three years to do the construction. So I think we're toying with the, the with, with a concept that allows properties to still be built with a gas boiler until 2028. And of course, you can get an extension to the building warrant as well. So we're miles away from doing the easy bit if the easy bit is stop doing the bad bit. Why do you think that is that the, the, the government is so reluctant to put that legislation in place now to force? I think that the, there's been so much conversation about carrot and stick and you know trying to incentivize developers oh. to do the right thing. But the reality is that the bottom line of their, their profits is what kind of dominates their decision making a lot of the time. So the fact that they're not putting in renewable energy into heating homes now when they're building them and then having those homeowners, which in, in some instances are first time homeowners, so they're already stretching themselves financially to then have to come back and, and face additional costs of retrofitting and putting in heat pumps five, 10 years down the line just seems to me a little bit crazy. So why do you think that that is? You were at COP26. Was there any discussion about the government becoming a little bit tougher um, and really making things uh, a lot more um, decisive for developers? Yeah, there was. There was There was good themes going on. COP, COP was a, an interesting situation. You don't get in the big room. I have to say that. I wasn't uh, hobnobbing with Joe Biden or, or anybody else, uh, David Attenborough and such like. Uh, but there's lots of stuff going around the edges, and there's actually so much stuff it's hard to hard to take it all in. But uh, a couple of conversations, Lord Callanan uh, spoke about uh, rebalancing the costs. Um, your question though is about the builders and and what would they do? They, they've got to run a business, and that's their business, and they will they will stick to the rules broadly speaking. Obviously, we we see scare stories of things weren't installed right and gaps underneath windows and all sorts of things from new builds. And I, I enjoyed a new built house and, you know, there were some snags to do. By and large, the quality was pretty good, but it was to the rules. I, and I say this slightly flippantly, but if the building, if the uh, housing construction industry in the UK could get away with selling a house without a front door, they probably would because it would save 50 quid. That's just the way that industry is. It's all about the rules. And frankly, uh, that's there's not. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that situation. I don't see why they, they necessarily would go above and beyond. The, the consumers uh, aren't asking them. You know, if they're asking them for space for an extra wide fridge, then that's the sort of houses they'll build. If they're asking them for 
you, you know, patio doors out to the garden, and that's what they'll do. But I can't yet see a situation where consumers are saying, I'm not buying your house because it's got a gas boiler. Um, so it's all about the rules, and and that's not difficult. Um, and it's it's you, you made the point about doing it early is the cheapest time to do it. You're absolutely right. It's very modest in terms of the cost of putting a heat pump into a, a brand new house that, frankly, the heat demand is so low because even, even the current standards, which I know many people feel should be much higher, but they are they are much much better than the the, the sort of 15, 20, 30 year old, 60 year old properties that exist. So the quantity of heat required is so low, uh, but they they'll, they'll they'll do whatever the rules tell them. So uh, you know this is the society we live in. Uh, tell them to do it. Uh, we, we spoke about the easy gains, and for me, when I kind of break things down, I see kind of the suburbs where people have got a nice garden, easy to put a, an air source heat pump in. That's kind of the easy win, I think, but it's also a very small fraction of the, the properties that exist in the UK. So I see kind of the high-rise buildings. I see that the, the terraced rows of houses in, in the city centers. What are the biggest barriers to actually just going in there? And, you know, they're all mains gas connected at the moment. How complicated is it to just go in there and just get entire streets done on some sort of heat pump driven um, district heating solution? There's a technical component to that. There's a commercial component to that. The technical component is, yeah, it's, it's it takes a lot of effort, but it's nothing that's complicated. There's a difference between how hard it is and, and, and how complicated it is. So it's not complicated in the sense of what pipes do we put in the ground or what kit do we put in the properties. The great thing about district heating is it's at slightly higher temperatures than a domestic heat pump would prefer to be running at. Um, you know, the lower the better is always, people keep, keep asking, what's the optimum temperature for a heat pump? As low as possible. You know, frankly, if you could get it down to 22 degrees, that would be that would be uh, pretty good. You know, but we have to remember we're heating we're heating space that people live in up to 21 degrees, and we're heating hot water so that you can use it at the tap at round about 40, 45 degrees. We ought not to have these super super high temperatures, but for district heating, it's fairly easy, even with the industrial heat pumps that we make, to get to 65, 75, 85 degrees. You know these sort of temperatures. So what that means is you can you can bring the heat to the property and then not have to do very much inside the property. Um, you know, turning up at somebody's um, apartment and saying, I'm going to change all the radiators, I'm going to change all the pipe work, you know, that's a big deal. But turning up and saying, can I take the boiler off the wall and put this heat interface unit, which looks like a boiler, but doesn't have a little window with a blue flame inside it. Um, we could put a sticker with a little blue flame on it, I suppose, <laughs> but, uh, if that's what people really wanted. But it's a very uh, straightforward swap out. I mean, even the, the pipes that had to come in could probably come through the size of the flue that's already cut in the wall. Um, wow. So it'd be a fairly straightforward uh, swap for, um, for for inside the apartments. And then it's just a question of, uh, you know, uh, putting the pipes in the street. You know, and that, that's that's quite a challenge, but it's not, it's not difficult. And so um, do you think the onus there is, um, do you think that, that that will ever happen, first of all? Do you think that that is remotely realistic, that that's ever going to be in our future where the government steps in and council step in and actually start to um, really push projects like that forward? On a, on a citywide scale. Yes, I 100% believe it, it will happen. And, and that that's a fairly, as somebody that often gets uh, called slightly miserable, I think that's a fairly, uh, a fairly bold thing to say. The reason I say it is, 
Um, a, we know what the problem is. This is the first phase that we've gone through. We know that we've got this um, pretty universally agreed challenge with climate change. We know the, we know the reasons for that, which is atmospheric pollution of principally carbon dioxide, but keep an eye on some of the other stuff like working fluids and, and so on and, and um, methane and so on. And we know what the solutions are now. We know that, you, that there is no building, and I'll say this very carefully, there's no building in the UK that could not be served with the heat it needs from a heat pump. Some of them will be easier and some will be harder and some will have a better efficiency and hence lower operating costs and some will be higher and some might have to be centralized heat pumps with district heating pipes but every single building even buckingham palace could be heated with a heat pump so the question is how do you make that happen and at the moment there isn't any sort of legislation pushing people towards it gas is absolutely accepted and that's what we're going to keep doing. You can't build these things speculatively. You've got to have some sort of reasonable confidence of the amount of heat you're going to sell. You know, people say, build it and they will come. That That's just not the way it is. Um, and particularly in a time scale. You know, if, if we had 100 years, you could take that approach. Or if we were, people often talk about Denmark and what they've achieved in Copenhagen from the 1970s. I think also, and it's about psychology, but... You know, if the choice is, do you want to keep carrying buckets of cold, uh, cold, sorry, through the snow, or do you want district heating? You know, it's a pretty easy choice to make. It was a, it was a good step for them. As I said right at the, the top of the chat, gas is a fantastic fuel in terms of its its capability and its performance, except for the pollution aspects. And and don't don't forget about the the local air quality aspects of uh, the NOx combustion from that. It comes back to this commercial proposition. It's going to be really difficult, but what the government are proposing is that every city will be zoned for suitability for district heating. So basically there will be a zone where inside that you ought to do district heating and outside that you ought to do your own thing in your semi-detached house or whatever it might be. They are moving in that direction. The challenge is, is making it cost-effective. But the thing to remember about heat pump is something like 75% of the lifetime cost of the heat pump is the cost of the electricity. And the kit should be, I don't like to say that the heat pump should be cheaper, but I think we could, we could deploy them on a lower cost. But equally, district heating is effectively doing that where you're not having individual stuff. It really is very straightforward in terms of the install. We've got this situation where the bulk of the cost is the life cycle cost, sorry, the bulk of the life cycle cost is the electricity cost. And we've got a situation where we're building um, electricity generating stations, wind farms principally, at about 50 pounds per megawatt hour. So that's five pence per kilowatt hour for the electricity cost. And then when people buy it, whether it's commercial or industrial users buy it, it's 15 or 20 pence. So it's three or four times the cost. That's all policy that leads to that. It's policy that pays for, you know, some of it's for the national grid, some of it's time of use charging, some of it's this uh, social environmental cost, which is about 25% of the cost. My worry is that although the government are looking at rebalancing the cost of electricity and gas, they're talking about the social cost, which is only 25%. You don't get heat pumps to, to work if the cost of electricity drops from 20 pence to 15 pence, you need it to be much, much lower than that. There are other ways of doing it. So um, we could, for example, as some countries have, I think I think Italy have, have um, said there is a specific electricity tariff for heat pumps and it's much, much down closer to gas. If we had this long-term vision of 
Seven pence electricity if, if you're running a heat pump, provided, and this is the, the, the absolutely brilliant thing about heat pumps is you don't have to run them when you want the heat. You can move it around a little bit like a time machine, whether it's hot water production that is only being done at night, or even, you know, in, in, in my house, uh, I, I was on a, a flexible tariff. I would tend to encourage the heat pump very simply with the, the, the clock on the wall, the, the, the thermostat on the wall. Um, so it didn't tend to run between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. when the price was highest, but I preheated my house by half a degree or a degree before that. That's just a case of having the thermostat notched up a little bit before the peak time and notch down a bit during the peak time. So you warm up a wee bit and then free wheel. And in all but the coldest days, that was quite successful. I was I could see from the data on the bills that I was broadly speaking not running the heat pump between 4 p.m. 7 p.m. when the when the price was high. So we can do all sorts of things that would support the decarbonization of the wider grid. And that's principally around being being flexible. So um, I'm not doing a very good job of making it sound simple, but it's it's really not complicated if you create the right uh, tariff structure for electricity heat pumps have a chance if you create the wrong tariff structure they haven't got hope in hell it seems very ironic that we're at this phase where the government is pushing and promoting and educating people on heat pumps and really pushing this massive drive towards heat pump just as we go into the first winter where we have a massive energy crisis we've got an electricity providers going bust left right and center and our as you said our tariffs are just rocketing through the roof how much of the onus um, is on the government to step in? They're really reluctant to step in at the moment. Uh, Rishi just did his budget. There's been an awful lot of talk about, you know, will the government step in and start subsidising? Because they subsidise gas. And for them not to be subsidising electricity, especially as, you know, homeowners that have already made that commitment to heat pumps already and are, are, are making an effort to do to go into renewables, it really does seem like we're just not being supportive. And if anything, we're being penalised for for the choices that we've made that they want us to make. So uh, there's 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 compliments and there's uh, non compliments. Whatever the right word for that is, um, the electricity market is really complicated. Um, the bill the bill that you receive says there's a tariff, but there's actually fourteen or fifteen components to that price. Some of them are the, the levies that have been charged to build the cleaner generating forms of electricity, wind farms principally. And that dates back over 20 years and there's been several schemes. Essentially, there's a, a, a contract for difference. And that basically means the government said, who wants to build a wind farm? How much do you want as a, as a, a, a cap, if you like, for, for the, that electricity you produce? And the bids all came back. And they were round about £50 per megawatt hour. I think it was actually 47 so 4.7p. And what that basically means is all the wind farms, um, when they're generating, are guaranteed to get uh, the market price, which might be below that, plus a top-up up to the 47 And that's super. With confidence, they know they can sell their electricity, they know how much they're going to sell it for, and the long money, the pension fund money, principally through the developers or, or private companies, SSC or Scottish Power or E.ON, whoever it might be, push into the market and build these wind farms. And that seems fairly straightforward. But if the price is at £60 on the market, then they still get £60, but they have to give £10 per megawatt hour back to the government. Now, I have no idea where those £10 per megawatts actually go, but they're not residing with the electricity generators. I think they go back to the back to the government, and I could be completely wrong here. I'm, I'm a, a, 
an idle uh, gazer onto things that I don't really understand. The other complexity of the electricity market is, and somebody described it like this to me, if you want to buy 10 apples and somebody's willing to sell you nine apples at a pound each, you would think that you pay them nine pounds, you get nine apples, and then you find somebody to buy your 10th apple, which might be 10 pounds, because it's quite scarce. And therefore you'd pay 19 pounds for your 10 apples, 10 pounds plus nine pounds. It's not the way the electricity market works. All the generators, this price that I was talking about, you know, is it 40, is it 50, is it 60? That is set by the last person, the last Apple seller. And that's basically the most expensive electricity that goes onto the grid. And so if that happens to be at 70 pounds per megawatt hour, then all the other nine suppliers get 70 pounds per megawatt hour, which is above their minimum threshold. So they're earning that from the wholesale market and then passing it back to the government. It's really, really complicated. And we've also got, and I can, I can totally see this, and I get a, a, bit, a bit wound up by the, the, the north-south politics, if you like, because Scotland quite clearly has got more wind farms than England, but they've been paid for by the subsidies that every bill payer pays. It's quite right that there's no local benefit, apart from the development fund, I can't remember what it's called, but if a wind farm is built, in your local vicinity, there's some community benefit fund, I think it's called. Aside from that, there isn't really a, a, a benefit to the local community of having this electricity being generated nearby. There's actually a penalty because the main consumers of electricity are in the south and we're generating in the north and the cables and the infrastructure aren't broad enough to get enough electricity down. So we end up with situations four miles from my house, there is Whiteley's wind farm. And you will, on occasion, see Whiteley's wind farm on a windy day, not generating electricity. And it's not because we're not using electricity nearby. And it's not because we're not, as the UK, importing electricity from France or there's a recent connector to Norway. It's because the places where we want to use the electricity are the wrong end of that, that cable. And so we have to pay the developer a constraint payment not to spin the wind. Otherwise, there'd be too much electricity in the grid. And some of the suppliers now are offering half-hourly tariffs that are that are higher in periods of higher demand, typically, versus generating capacity, and lower, sometimes negative, in fact. Uh, but that can only be offered across the entire UK at the same time. So you can't regionally, and this is an off-gem uh, legislation, and I, I can see some merit for it, because it, it would be a bit odd to have different electricity tariffs in different places. But what it basically means is if we haven't got the, infra the the national infrastructure to get the electricity to the places where everybody is, is using it, then we have to still keep the price high um, and we, uh, we pay the generators not to generate in specific locations. The obvious thing to do would be uh, to start installing batteries in houses and uh, solar PV, but um, if the price is generally still high, then there's no point in having a battery. There's no point charging a battery with electricity that's 20 pence per kilowatt hour to then use it later at 20 pence per kilowatt hour. Unless, of course, you were given the battery for free, mm -hmm. in which case, yeah, why not? But generally speaking, what people are looking at fairly closely is charging the, charging the battery at night when it might be five and a half pence and discharging the battery into the property during the day when it might be 15 to 20 pence. And there's some merit for that, although I think when you look at the number of kilowatt hours that you'd have to do, it's still pretty marginal in terms of payback period, you know, seven, eight years or so. However, um, and, and to wrap this back to heat pumps, because the whole, the whole sort of um, system is linked, 
if and what I was saying earlier about I, I don't really see um, cost effective propositions existing after the RHI for the vast majority of, of properties. If it's a very small property, yeah, some sort of subsidy um, companies are beginning to sort of try and do heat pumps on mass and that will push the installation cost down. Much more off-site manufacturing, they seem to come as a, a bunch of bits that, that mm -hmm. need a, a craftsman to, to uh, put together over several days. Um, we really want to be seeing heat pumps taking half a day to install. That's when you know that we've we've cracked it. But um, we we just need to get to the situation where every property has a vial option. And clearly the way to do that would be to have some different form of, of contract um, where instead of it being you have to pay cash for your heat pump, you might get some grant subsidy or you might get an operational subsidy from the RHI, which, as I said, is finished. What if suppliers had enough certainty in the marketplace that they could offer a homeowner the deployment of a heating system at a fixed price. It might be pegged to electricity, it might not. And if they were a big company, they would be obviously buying the electricity much better. They might install solar PV in the roof, which is generating at a lower cost typically than the grid. And they might be installing batteries and doing a bit of time shifting. But the deal was, whatever you've been paying at the moment, uh, that same price or hopefully slightly lower for keeping your house at 21 degrees. So instead of buying gas or buying heat, you're buying comfort. Because at the end of the day, that's what people really just want is, is comfortable living um, in, in their property. That has been talked about for a while, but the rules keep changing and flip-flopping about. And that's, that's what government really need to do is give this stability and surety of what the, what the runway over the next 10, 15 years looks like so that businesses can actually do this. You mentioned that you've got a heat pump and you've got ground source as well at your property. So it's a, it's a ground source heat pump. Um, just to, just expand on that a bit, because I kind of feel that um, a lot of the time that we when we speak to followers or viewers um, and we have those conversations and those messages with them, they kind of everybody's starting because there's been such a, a lot of push and uh, media coverage about heat pumps. People just are kind of now kind of almost uh, you know, seeing and thinking of heat pumps only. They're not really associating heat pumps to ground source or air to air, or you know, they're really just thinking it's a it's a box, it's a fan, and it's gonna it has to be air to water. Can you just tell a little bit more about the different options that where heat pumps apply? Well, you, you, you've touched on something really interesting there because um, air-to-air -air heat pumps don't get talked about very much. Um, you know, look, would look like an air conditioning system, but it's still a heat pump. It's got a bit outside that goes cold and a bit inside that goes warm. It was never subsidised uh, by any of the government schemes because the reason that the UK government are enacting um, this move towards renewable heat is that it was one of the European legislations um, and under the Renewable um, Energy Systems Directive, dates back to about 2005. And each member state agreed that they would increase the amount of renewable energy that the buildings were consuming um, and, and move away from fossil fuel. It was decided that it would be too difficult to judge how efficient an air-to-air -air heat pump was operating. It's very hard to measure quantities of air. It's very easy to measure quantities of water uh, when it's moving. Really, you don't want to put in a, a heat pump which is air-to-air -air and only producing 1.5 units of heat for one unit of electricity. That wouldn't be very good. And there'd be no way of telling other than that 
you, you were using quite a lot of electricity. So they, they, they left it out of the um, agreed um, techniques. And so it was only air source or ground source. And also there was no um, opportunity to do waste heat recovery as a, as a heat source. That was kind of excluded as well because it was deemed not to be renewable. Lots of rules, lots of lobbying and, and whispering in ears from the fossil fuel industry and compromises and all sorts. 2005 is a long time ago. The RHI was the mechanism the UK government used to then encourage homeowners to deploy a heat pump. And they could only give that subsidy, and this is the way European uh, law works, you can only give a subsidy for something that is to achieve a European directive. If it was a renewable technique, you can give the subsidy. If it's not a renewable technique, you couldn't give the subsidy. So no subsidies for air-to-air -air heat pumps. All of these properties that are electrically heated could easily fit a single, and my parents live in a flat that's electrically heated, and they could, they could easily uh, fit a... a air-to-air -air heat pump for a large chunk of their heating and get probably an efficiency of about three to one and therefore reduce the cost of their heating from direct electric to um, heat pump. So that's the first bit. We've not quite got our heads around that. The real question that you asked though was about ground source or air source. And it's an ongoing debate, even in uh, heat pump um, um, sort of uh, working groups and, and um uh, trade associations, there's, there's a degree of differing opinion. And the reality is they're both right in different circumstances and they both come with challenge and compromise. I personally uh, picked a ground source heat pump um, because uh, it's a vertical borehole. So the one thing to remember is it doesn't mean that you've got to have a paddock with three horses running around it that's got pipes underneath it. A, vert a single vertical borehole in front of my garage, it took about four days to put in then the pipes come into the garage, they're connected up to the heat pump that's indoors. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to do that was, um, if, if you've, uh, you know, look at any sort of kit that's in your garden, it's getting absolutely destroyed by the weather. We've got mm. enough rain and enough frost and not enough sunshine that stuff just doesn't last outdoors. So I wanted the heat pump indoors and you can have a ground source heat pump indoors, but you can't really have an air source heat pump indoors. So I, I wanted a ground source heat pump. And the cost, the borehole was about £12,000. And I looked at it and said, well, you know, I'm not necessarily planning to move. Um, I'm not sure this is my forever house, but, you know, I'm in my 40s. I, you know, I might still be here, whatever. 40 years life of this borehole, probably longer. It was less than £5 a week. And I thought, that's, a, that's an investment I'm prepared to make. And so I did a vertical borehole with a heat pump inside the house. On this sort of mass rollout, I don't really see that being the route that the, the, the sort of collective installers will go. They will probably go air source. And the air source heat pumps are better than they were, you know, years and years ago. And that's, it's just, they're, they're, they're both better than gas. Let's, uh, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs here. But really interesting, actually, because of all the interviews that we've done, all the conversations that we've had, it's never occurred to me and never been explained to me that actually if you go for ground source and you get a heat mm. pump, that heat pump can actually be inside your property. Mm -hmm. We always think of heat pumps on the outside of the property, all the pictures we see, all the video footage we see is, is a heat pump outside and that's the discussion mm -hmm. of where am I going to put it? Uh, how much noise is it going to make? Um, mm. That's really interesting that you've actually put your, your heat pump inside your home. Is it noisy? Can you hear it? Oddly, though, when I first got it done, we got a new fridge at the same time. And I was lying in bed one night, not sleeping, thinking, I can hear that heat pump. That's not good. 
it turned out it was the fridge in the kitchen that I was uh, so <laughs> brilliant um so yeah it's, it's a mechanical device really you'd have to be standing right next to it to to hear it um well, but noise is a really funny thing it can travel around the house for for odd reasons i've got a circulation pump with older internal um, radiator pipe work and so on you you quite possibly need a, a booster pump just the same way as with a gas boiler you probably had a separate um distribution pump i i hear i hear the pump more than i hear the heat pump so your ground source um the borehole is obviously just outside the garage it's obviously yeah. not inside the garage so that's that was you know that was easy and very accessible to the installers to get to and they just put that borehole in and then the the air source the, the heat pump just gets put inside the garage as well that's a that's a really clever solution yeah the the drilling rig was about the size of a transit van so they reversed onto the driveway put the feet out and started drilling wow. they just went down and down and down it was down to about 200 meters which is quite a long way but this drilling rig was outside my house for four days but they were actually only drilling for 16 hours it's twelve thousand pounds and there was only two guys there so labor is labor you can work out roughly what that would be and the bit of kit i'm sure is really expensive but part of the reason it's really expensive is because it was only working 16 of the of the four days 16 hours of the four days it was there if the market allowed house after house after house to do it, then, you know, we we, we might see the costs uh, come down a wee bit. So with regards to um, heat pumps and the future of, of heat pumps and where you think interesting projects are, you dropped the, the whiskey bomb just before we started the interview, mentioned something to do with whiskey. I'm really intrigued. Hmm. What do you, what, where do you see these uh, heat pumps being installed and what kind of exciting projects are you um being aware made aware of so there's there's already been some some pilot projects around europe with heat pumps running at 160 degrees so you know we're way beyond the sort of 45 50 degrees for domestic the the large stuff that we do for for river source at 80 85 degrees you know we will definitely see lots more of that you know uh, something like 80 percent of scotland's heat demand is within a thousand meters of rivers so quite clearly rivers as a source the river thames for example also could support enough heat for 2 million homes or something. The, the numbers are just huge. And essentially, it's it's tidal anyway. So the water's sloshing in and out in the North Sea. In cities, we'll definitely see that. But what we, we recognised quite early on was that heat pumps will get warmer and warmer. And the key thing is where to get the heat from. Many processes, but whiskey is a specific. You're heating something up and then cooling it back down again lots of industrial processes like that the first heat pump we did was a chocolate factory you bring the ingredients in you heat them up you mix them around you cool them down that joining up the one side to the other and that's why my my twitter handle is a waste heat user uh, it's been like that since the beginning but for whiskey it's exactly the same it just needs slightly warmer you're, you're putting the heat into the bottom of the copper still at around about 120 130 degrees or so and that boils the alcohol out of the weak they call it beer and it's four or six percent strength alcohol and it boils alcohol out goes up the neck of the copper still and then at the top of the neck is where it's cooled down again so it's then a liquid alcohol 100 proof so you've got this inherently heat and heat back out loop so it's heat recycling and any process where you can recover the heat and put it back in again will move from fossil fuels to that so the whiskey industry is one of the largest um, carbon footprints in Scotland. Um, I think the wastewater treatment plants are the highest. Um, certainly the NHS will be, be high as well. But the whiskey industry as a totality is, is big. 
And they've recognised this. And what they have to do is move away from fossil fuels. And they also have to, I mentioned earlier about air quality, they have to move away from um, things where they're creating um, other forms of air pollution. So biomass uh, would not be good, particularly if it's near built up areas. Moving to burning hydrogen, for example, it's all the rage. Everybody talks about it. But when you burn hydrogen, you do get NOx emissions because the nitrogen in air that's being being burned um, to get the oxygen disassociates and reforms as nitrous oxide. So we have to be really, really careful. We're not jumping from one problem into a different problem. If you put a heat pump on the still and it's electrically driven and the electricity comes from uh, a clean generating source, you drop the, the carbon emissions of that process down to practically zero. And so we will see heat pumps at higher temperatures. Any process that needs higher temperatures uh, will move towards heat pumps especially if there is a, a relatively high grade. And I was saying about the cooling of the of the, the, the spirit um, vapour into, into liquid. That occurs at around about 65, 70 degrees. So you're actually talking about a fairly narrow temperature lift. If you think of a heat pump, quite literally as the name says, but we forget what it actually means, but you're pumping heat uphill. If you're starting slightly further up the hill, even if the hill is taller, you're still not doing nearly as much work as if you're starting at the very bottom of the hill at zero degrees, which might be the temperature you get your heat from surrounding air or the ground. So really exciting stuff happening in higher temperature aspects. Basically moving as much as possible away from combustion because combustion will get much, much more expensive. We have decades of extremely talented engineers doing um, oil and gas extraction. We've got the price really, really low when you consider what we're actually doing and how difficult it is in the, the harsh environments that they're working in, whether it's the North Sea or in, in the Middle East or whatever. So we've got the cost of that really low. The cost of alternatives to that will either be um, making hydrogen from methane and, and you need more methane to make a quantity of heat that's carried in hydrogen. So it's going to be more expensive than gas or Taking electricity, and this is a really good bit to finish on. If you take one kilowatt hour of electricity from an offshore wind farm and put it into an electrolyzer to make hydrogen, and then you take that hydrogen, you pipe it somewhere else, and then you burn it, you get about half a kilowatt hour of heat. It's about 50% efficient as a process. Might be just might nudge slightly higher than that, but not much. If you take that same one kilowatt hour of electricity and put it into an electric heat pump, and you get three units of heat or three kilowatt hours, you get six times as much heating impact for that same wind farm. So you can look at that different ways. You either do it with hydrogen, you need six times as many wind farms, or you do it with heat pumps, and you get six times as much heat for the, the quantity of wind farms you've got. These are the sort of numbers that when you put them in the spreadsheets, don't end up doing it the, the less efficient way. You'll see wherever possible, people will do heat pumps. We just need to get the price of electricity right so that if you're using electricity that's being made for £50 per megawatt hour that you're paying 50 and a little bit more, there's obviously got to be some sort of transmission cost, but we've got to simplify the cost of electricity so it's production cost plus a notional amount. And then you'll see heat pumps really, really stacking up against fossil fuels, particularly as the cost of them rises for all sorts of reasons, taxation reasons, but anybody, um, you're blending hydrogen into the grid is going to push up the cost of gas to people's homes quite dramatically. People talk about 20% blend, but it's 20% by volume, which is only 7% by energy content. So you're, you're taking a very expensive fuel and blending it in 
and pushing the price of that 7% up dramatically. I think we're going to see this natural push-up of uh, gas costs, which worries me greatly because right at the top of the call, we talked about uh, you know people are, are, are struggling to pay bills. We've got to very quickly find a way of deploying solutions for people that don't cost them any upfront cash and don't cost more to run. Otherwise, we'll be, we'll be pushing them down this pathway of higher and higher costs of, of heating, and that's that's tragic. It uh, really can't be allowed to happen. I think that the industry as a whole, and I think that uh, unfortunately it's not just industry, um, it's not just constrained to in that industry, but I think it's now going to leak into homeowners as well. Mm. I think homeowners have got massive challenges and tough decisions ahead. Um, both um, sustainability with, re with regards to, I keep saying this, don't uh -huh. I? For me, sustainability is, it can't just be about the resource being sustainable. It also has to be about it being sustainable sustainable for that individual so whether that is you know access to something or whether it's financially sustainable to somebody mm -hmm. um, we have to really start to think about um the, a more holistic approach of sustainability and you know renewables certainly do, does offer um home, homeowners that but as mm -hmm. you said um i think that we still need we've still got a long way to go with regards to helping people get there indeed but it's all policy it's just yeah. bits of paper. We know the techniques. We just need the bits of paper to be supporting them. So can I finish by congratulating you on the on the work you're doing? Uh, Renewable Heating and Hub is, uh, you know, just trying to share this message um, that it's possible. Um, well done. Keep doing Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we. I, I just hope that, um, you know, our goal here is to just make it um, the conversation more accessible mm -hmm. to people. And um, I think that some of the things that you've talked about today have really just been explained to us so simply. And very, uh, very well. I think that there's just, uh, you know, I think that at the moment, the conversation is just starting to become more and more complicated because, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, for example, taking a boiler out and sticking in a, a heat pump. We're talking about, you know, the challenges of installers that we don't have, um, the, the grants that are now disappearing and being replaced and are quite controversial um, about all the different you know, energy sector and the crisis there. So it's starting to become, it's starting to snowball into a really, really broad conversation. And there's so much to, to think about as homeowners. Um, so I, I really just hope that um, uh, each of these conversations that we have just start, starts to bring a little bit more um, knowledge to people and mm. make a little bit more um, accessible with regards to information. But yeah, thank you so so much and My I actually pleasure. learned about a whiskey yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't I mean, thank you so much that was incredibly insightful <laughs> I didn't expect to learn about whiskey today so that's something else it's a little bit early it's only 12 o'clock so just give it a few hours I don't know if it's that early <laughs> it's going to be five o'clock somewhere in the world <laughs> indeed. Indeed. thank you very thank much you. Dave. Thanks, thanks so much have a great day bye-bye